Well, our time in the Word tonight is going to revolve around the questions that you have turned in. And as always, every month, I appreciate those of you who have taken the time to, um, to uh, just write down a, a question or a note or whatever. And uh, good ones again this month. Uh, good thinking through some issues. So hopefully our time in the Word will help. Make sure you have a Bible that you can uh, look on, follow along. We won't be in one set passage. We'll need to bounce around. So you have to lick your fingers and plan on turning from passage to passage. So we'll begin in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2 for the first question tonight. So turn to the third Gospel account, uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. And uh, interestingly, Luke, as a doctor, as a physician, gives us so much more about the birth of Jesus, the early days of Jesus. It's obvious that he was interested in and intrigued with that. And uh, he has some of those unique stories about the early days of our Lord's life. And of course, this one here in chapter 2 that is uh, so interesting, uh, where Jesus is taken by his parents to Jerusalem. And he has gone there for the Feast of the Passover. In chapter 2, verse 42, when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Uh, this is something that uh, all Jewish, righteous Jewish families would do. They would make this trek to Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus' parents had done this regularly. They did this when he was 12. And most uh, commentators believe that this, this particular occasion, the reason Luke mentions it, was actually the bar mitzvah of Jesus. That is a, a Jewish custom where uh, a young man, and of course for the gals it's called bat mitzvah. Bar in Aramaic is son, bat is daughter. A mitzvah means commandment uh, or law. So bar mitzvah means becoming a son of the commandment. It's a Jewish tradition in which a young man is said to have stepped into the stage of life now where he is responsible to keep the commandments of God. Uh, and in a sense, he relates to God on his own, not through his parents. And it's not that the parents have no more responsibility for him. He's only 12 years old. But it's a significant transition. And uh, Jesus' parents took him up. And evidently, this was, uh, he was there with all of these other 12-year-olds uh, celebrating their bar mitzvah. And of course, you know the story uh, when they had finished, verse 43 says, they, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. Joseph and his mother did not know it. Now, don't be too critical of them and think, what kind of parents are these? This was, this was not uncommon. Um, well, it was uncommon to lose your kid. But, I mean, it wasn't uncommon uh, for the, the group to go as a group. Uh, they would make this trek. All of these from up in Galilee would travel as a group. It was Pretty uh, extensive journey. They would usually cross from Galilee over to the east side of the Jordan, come down, then cross and go up at Jericho, come up Jerusalem. So you, you didn't make that trip on your own. Uh, too dangerous, uh, both just from uh, the, uh, you know, the uh, geography, the heat and all of that. And also because even as Jesus brought out in his parable of the Good Samaritan, there were bandits that would hide in the hills, especially between Jericho and Jerusalem. So you went in large groups and family members and all of this. So uh, what surely happened here is they just assumed, well, he's with one of the cousins or he's with the aunt or uncle or someone like that, a large group. And so they go on uh, assuming that maybe, in fact, when he came down, he had been with another family member. So they just assume, well, He's with this family member going uh, back, verse 44. Supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey, sought him among their relatives and acquaintances, 
So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And here's the verse that is being asked about in the question. He said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. And here's the question. In response to Jesus' statement here, Mary and Joseph knew about the virgin birth. That's right. Mary knew from Gabriel about her child being called Holy, the Son of God, in Luke one thirty-five, She knew about Elizabeth's testimony about her miracle birth. Mary and Joseph knew about the testimony of the angels, the Magi from the east, Simeon and Anna from the temple. What was there in Jesus' statement in Luke 2.49 that Mary and Joseph did not understand? It's an excellent question, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I think it was. As devout Jews, you're right, they understood all of that, and they understood their own history. They knew that there were other unique births in their past. Uh, the, the birth of Samson was unique. I just read that story this week. You remember uh, 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 Samson's mother is visited by an angel who says you're going to give birth, so here's what you're to eat, what you're not to eat, and it was a, it was a unique, maybe we could use the word miraculous birth. They knew their own history. They knew about Isaac, how Abraham and Sarah were beyond the childbearing years, so, so they knew all that. And as de- devout Jews, uh, they understood that this was something very unique, but here's, I think, the answer. Because they were devout Jews, they simply could not comprehend the deity of Jesus. You, you see, beloved, that is something that, that would, for us, we, we, we know about it in Scripture, we understand it. But for a Jewish person, I don't know how I can explain this to get you into the mind of a Jewish person. The, the foundational doctrine in Judaism is Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one true God. God drilled that into their minds throughout all of their history, throughout all of the Old Testament. Even uh, up to this present day, if you go into a Jewish home, or not just a Jewish home, in a motel, when we take groups to Israel, you'll see on all the door frames a little sort of a scroll holder called a mezuzah, and a, a righteous Jew is supposed to Touch it and kiss his or her hand. And in that is a little scroll of, uh, with Deuteronomy 6.4 on it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one true God. And so this was something that had been drilled into them. So even though they knew all of this that you mentioned, they knew this child was unique. They knew there was something miraculous. But I think they just still could not get over that hurdle that a man, this child they knew was also human, could be God. The doctrine of the Trinity is something that uh, we, not that we can understand, but something that we can accept. It's something that most Christians are introduced to early on in life. But for the Jewish person, still to this day, the whole idea of the Trinity or the triunity of God, that is anathema. That is blasphemous. There's only one God, and you Christians believe in three gods. Uh, it's the same thing that a lot of uh, Muslims will say about the, about the Trinity. So I think that's what it was. What they couldn't understand is this statement, not that Jesus was going to do the work of God, but his statement in verse 49 that I must be about my father's business. 
Calling God my Father. You'll remember that in John 5 when Jesus said that, my Father is working until now and I am working. That's all he said. My Father is working and I am working. And what was the response of the Jewish people? They tried to kill him. Just for saying my Father has been working. They knew what he was claiming. And so in John 5, they picked up stones to stone him. So for him to say that, even though they, they obviously did know he was unique, they, this was miraculous, but this idea of his deity, uh, they just could not comprehend that. They could not wrap their minds around that. And uh, they just, I don't know how long it took them before that's something they could accept. Even the disciples, if you trace their development, uh, they believed Jesus was the Messiah long before they could wrap their minds around the idea that he was God in human flesh. It was, a, it was a lot less of a hurdle to get over to accept Jesus as Messiah than it was to accept Jesus as God in human flesh, especially for Jewish people. So I think that's what's going on here and why they, they just could not grasp it. All right, next question is... Uh, out of, and you don't necessarily have to turn back there. We won't look at one particular passage uh, because it's a section, and this is from Ezekiel 40 through 48, uh, where you have land divisions, the temple, etc. And the question is this, is what is described in so much detail in Ezekiel 40 through 48 something that has already happened? Or is, it to be, uh, or is it to be ahead? Or is it both? So when we read this, are we hearing about something we will someday uh, someday see or experience? Let me answer that last question. I think the answer to that is yes, because I believe, now I need to state up front, that, that commentators, Bible scholars are not unified on Ezekiel 40 through 48. It's a very difficult passage. I think the best explanation of the, of the text is that you have a description in Ezekiel 40 through 48 of the millennial temple, because most of that is about the temple. Uh, the millennial temple when you read there, and then the, the divisions and all of those things, the, the land divisions, etc. And uh, one of the reasons why I do not believe this is past is because if you take the dimensions seriously, the dimensions that are described there in Ezekiel 40 through 48, that temple that is described would not even fit on the entire Temple Mount today. It's so huge. In fact, it would hardly even fit in the old city of Jerusalem today. And so, uh, again, if you take the measurements seriously uh, and, and, and literally at face value, then I think what is being described is a future temple. It will not be the tribulation temple because that's going to exist probably on the Temple Mount as we know it today. It's no temple. It's not describing uh, the first temple, which we often refer to as Solomon's temple, not referring to what we often call second temple, uh, first uh, built initially and then expanded by Herod. Uh, Second Temple, Herod's Temple, it's not that. I take it it is a millennial temple. We do know from Hebrew Scripture that when the Lord Jesus comes back, there is going to be a major rearrangement of the city of Jerusalem. In fact, it's going to begin right when he comes back because the prophet Zechariah says that when he comes, his feet will touch the Mount of Olives, which is just east of Jerusalem, and it's going to split. Half of it's going to slide north, and half of it's going to slide south, which is going to create a big valley in there. And it's going to allow for a river, which is going, to, is going to flow from the temple, to go out east and go down into the Dead Sea. And once that river flows into the Dead Sea, it's going to bring the Dead Sea to life. So that fishermen will be out there uh, 
cleaning their nets. That is described, uh, uh, taking the stuff out of their nets, etc. Well, if you saw a fisherman today throwing his, sea, his net into the Dead Sea, you'd say he's, he's crazy. There's no reason to throw your net into the Dead Sea today because it's, uh, it's uh, almost 33% salt and minerals. There's no, no fish living out in the sea. Some things that live right along the shore and some of the brackish water. Uh, but it's going to transform the Dead Sea, or as the Jews prefer to refer to it, the Salt Sea. So there, is going to, there are going to be some major uh, topographical, uh, geological changes in the land of Israel for the Millennial Kingdom. Of course, one of the most famous is the prophet Isaiah's statement that the desert will blossom like a rose. Uh, so all that to say, I believe that Ezekiel 40 through 48 is describing a future Millennial temple. One of the hang-ups on that view, by the way, just to, to uh, be uh, intellectually honest about it, is that uh, you have a sacrificial system being described in Ezekiel 40 through 48, which does cause some problems. What is the sacrificial system doing if this is a future millennial temple? I think the best answer to that is that it is describing those sacrifices as memorials, very much like the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table is for us today. It is a remembrance of what Jesus accomplished. And finally, the Jewish people will be able to offer the sacrifices with the clarity of understanding that, they, that the Lord would want them to have uh, in those sacrifices. All right, next question. Uh, John's Gospel, chapter 3. So turn over to John, chapter 3. <coughs> This is, of course, the famous, um, the famous conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus about the new birth. And the question is this. It's good, good insight. I don't know who caught this or who, who knew this. But uh, in John 3, verse 7, Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, when we read that in English, it looks like Jesus is just saying what he has been saying to Nicodemus back in verse 3, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 7, do not marvel, I said to you, you must be born again. But what someone has caught is, and this is their question, in John 3, 7, why does Jesus switch from singular to plural, you? In other words, in the Greek text, the you here in verse 7 is plural. It's not singular. So it is obviously not merely referring to Nicodemus. It's referring to some, one, or some group, plural. And I think there are two answers to that question. Why? Uh, one is because even though Nicodemus came by night, we were told that back at verse 2, that is, he didn't come uh, when there were uh, <clears throat> huge crowds of people around. Uh, that's not to say that there was no one else present. It's possible that Jesus' disciples were hearing this conversation and even some of the disciples of Nicodemus. Because we find out later in this, uh, in, let me see the verse here, um, uh, verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? Notice that definite article. Are you the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, and you do not know these things? Nicodemus was a very significant leader, the, maybe the leading teacher in Israel. And so if he came, it would not have been surprising if he came with some of his own disciples. And so... To answer your question, why does Jesus switch from singular to plural? I think, one, because of the potential or possible audience present. Some of his disciples, some of the disciples of Nicodemus, anyone else who would have heard this conversation, he wanted to make it clear that it wasn't merely Nicodemus who had to be born again. Everyone has to be born again. No one is excluded from that requirement. And secondly, I think also 
uh, for future readers. Uh, Jesus obviously knew that what he said would be recorded in gospel records, recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he says later in this gospel that uh, he, he alludes to that in the Upper Room Discourse when he talks about the Holy Spirit coming and bringing things to your remembrance so they could write the Gospels. So for the case of future readers, it's plural because it is a way of saying to you and to me, you must be born again. No one is excluded. We all, we all must be born from above to see the kingdom of heaven. So good catch on that, whoever uh, caught that plural in that uh, statement. Uh, staying in John's Gospel, turn over to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse... This is, of course, again, the famous story of Jesus healing the blind man. And um, in verse 7, when John records this, he, he tells us that Jesus said to him, this blind man, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seen. And probably in your Bible, where John gives us the, the translation of this term, Siloam, it may be parenthetical or in parentheses, which is translated sent, because the Hebrew word here does mean to send or sent. And here's the question. Uh, why does John make the comment about the name Siloam, meaning sent? When the pool was named, in what way was it sent? Or was it somehow prophetic of this episode? Are there any stories or traditions about the original naming of the pool? And basically to answer all of your questions in one statement, uh, I, I don't have any information or awareness on that. I, I don't know why. We know that if you go all the way back into history, the Hebrew scripture, the story, um, many of you I know in here have been through Hezekiah's tunnel. You know the story there when Hezekiah knew that the invading army was coming. He had the tunnel cut through the rocks so that the water would come from the Gihon Spring, go over into the Pool of Siloam, and, uh, and fill the Pool of Siloam. Then he camouflaged the water source so that when the army came, they wouldn't be able to cut off their water supply, etc. So it goes all the way back to that time, maybe even earlier. But in all my uh, times of going to Israel, all my studies on the geography of Israel and all of that, I have never, I'm not saying there isn't anything, I've never run across anything that would uh, answer why was this called sent? Why initially, in other words, to answer your question, um, when the pool was named, in what way was it sent? Or was it somehow prophetic of this episode? Um, I, I, don't, I don't see anything that would indicate that there was an intentional prophetic connection um, so I, I can't answer your question other than to know that that's what it was called, still called to this day. Um, and uh, it was a pool that had a, a strategic role back in chapter 7 of John's Gospel, uh, where they would, during the, this one particular feast, they would go gather water, bring it up to Jerusalem. And Jesus used that occasion to say, if anyone thirsts, John seven thirty seven, let him come to me and drink. Uh, that, was, uh, that was in connection with the pool of Siloam. But uh, I've never read in geographical studies or anything uh, any, uh, that would answer where that name came from or what the significance is or anything along those lines. All right, next question. Isaiah 6, and then hold your place here in John, though, because we're going to answer it in John. So don't skip out of John. Just go back to Isaiah chapter 6. <clears throat> Isaiah 6, of course, is a, uh, a very famous chapter in Isaiah, one of the most 
famous or well-known because of this, this event. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And notice you have uh, uh, this description that follows of the throne. And so I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, etc. And then uh, you, you have the uh, verse 3, One cried to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And there you have the all caps, L-O-R-D, Yahweh. And uh, you're, you're familiar with this story. Uh, go back to John, because I want to go to John to answer the question. Now I'll read it. It says this, in Isaiah 6, 1, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In John four twenty four, Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Since God is invisible, how was Isaiah able to see him? Well, you could answer this two ways, and I'll give probably what would be the most common way someone would answer. And they would say, well, people in Hebrew Scripture did see the Lord in a limited fashion. You remember even Moses, you know, uh, show me, I want to see you. Well, I can't, you can't see me live, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and you can see my afterglow as it passes by, etc. So, you know, there were occasions where people saw a vision of the Lord or, or some sort of veiled uh, picture of the Lord. No one saw him in full blazing glory. No one could live. So you could answer it by saying, well, notice what Isaiah describes in Isaiah 6. He doesn't describe the Lord as much as the angels and everything around it because he couldn't really see the Lord in, in his unrestricted glory. And I think that's a, a valid way to answer that question. But I think there's maybe even a better way, and that we are told about in John 12. So look at John chapter 12. As John is sort of summing up the ministry of Jesus in Jerusalem, he says this in verse 37. Uh, John 12, 37. But although he, the he here is Jesus, although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. And don't miss that change. Verse 37, they would not believe. Now they could not believe. What happens between, between the would not and the could not, God's judicial blinding, hardening has set in. For so long they would not believe, they would not believe, and eventually it came to a point where they could not believe because God's judicial blindness and hardening had set in. Therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again, now here's the interesting thing, verse 40, you'll notice it's probably italicized or quoted or something, because these verses come right out of Isaiah 6, the passage we were in just a moment ago, verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah 6. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. Now here's the fascinating statement. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory. Now what's the antecedent of his? It is verse 37. Although he, Jesus, had done so many signs before him, they did not believe in him. And then we have these quotations. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. What is John doing here? John is connecting Jesus with Yahweh, stating that Jesus is equal with Yahweh, is Yahweh, and that 
he is basically saying that Isaiah saw Jesus in Isaiah chapter 6. So if he did see, you know, your question is, if God is spirit, if he did see the Lord, then it's very likely he would have seen the pre-incarnate Christ and he had seen his glory. So you can answer that question either way, or maybe the answer is both of those are true, is that what Isaiah saw was only just, uh, you know, some, uh, not the full unrestricted glory, but the glory he did see, we are told here, was the glory of Jesus And this is a powerful statement in John's gospel, coming back to what we talked about earlier, how difficult it is for Jews to accept the deity of Christ. Well, this passage for a Jewish person would be uh, a huge hurdle for John to say, Isaiah saw Jesus in Isaiah 6. Okay, next question uh, says, uh, let's turn to the book of Revelation for the uh, answer to this. Well, hold your place in John, too, because I want to show you place in John. It just so happens that most of these are in John tonight, but and look at Revelation uh, chapter 1, etc. And we'll look at John 16, so you can turn just a few pages over in John. And the question is this, um, what will the Holy Spirit's job be once we get to heaven? Christ has redeemed his creation, etc., And, of course, this is a good question because someone's thinking, well, okay, we know what Scripture says about his role is today. Uh, Years ago, I sort of created this little acronym to help me remember the role of the Holy Spirit. It's the, I share it with many of you, it's CRIBS, C-R-I-B-S, with a filling at the end. So CRIBS, conviction, regenerating, indwelling, baptizing, sealing, and then the F, filling. That's the Holy Spirit's role today. He convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He regenerates. He indwells the believer. That's the I. He baptizes us into the body of Christ. He seals us to the day of redemption. He fills us, Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So we know the Holy Spirit's role today, but what about when we get to heaven? What is His role? Well, we see the, the Spirit present a few times in the book of Revelation, possibly, and there are different interpretations on this, but, but many commentators would say in chapter 1, verse 4, the statement about the, the, at the very last of that, the seven spirits are before his throne. Many would say that is a reference to the Holy Spirit in all of his fullness. Uh, you have the similar phrase or the same phrase over in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. Uh, and from the throne proceed the lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. You have a similar statement in chapter 5, verse 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so many commentators believe that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit in all of his fullness, because this uh, same picture is used in Hebrew Scripture, so can't be dogmatic on that. But the point is this, if this is a reference to the Holy Spirit, then we see the Holy Spirit present a few times in the book of Revelation. But in answer to your question, what will his role or his function be? We're not told. We don't know. We're told a lot about the Father in the book of Revelation, told a lot about the Son, but we're not told a lot about the Holy Spirit. And this shouldn't surprise us because it fits with his role that Jesus describes in John 16. Now you can go back to John 16. And Jesus made it clear that the Spirit's role is to exalt the Father and primarily the Son. 
that is, maybe this is a poor way to say it, but the Holy Spirit, even though he is, he is equal with the Father and the Son, in essence, there's no distinction between them as far as their essence, co-equal, the Holy Spirit is just as much God as the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit defers to the Father and the Son. It's his role to exalt primarily the Son. And Jesus said this in John 16 when he was telling about the coming of the Spirit. He says this, verse 13, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me. Notice that. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. That's a very key statement about the Holy Spirit's function and role even today. That is why, by the way, if you find a church that, or a ministry or whatever that exalts the Holy Spirit, that exalts the Holy Spirit in an undue, unbalanced fashion, you can be sure of one thing. Ironically, the Holy Spirit is not in control there. Because if the Holy Spirit is in control, he's not going to exalt himself. That's not his role. He defers to the Father and the Son. His role is to exalt the Son. And that's one of the most ironic things about uh, uh, some very well-meaning Christians and ministries today which place overemphasis on the Holy Spirit in a wrong sense of that term because they are not lining up with the Holy Spirit's desire himself and his role and his function. So, again, in answer to your question, what will the Holy Spirit be doing in heaven? Uh, we really don't know. And this shouldn't surprise us. It fits with his role to exalt the Son. But we should not, please hear this, we should not draw from that a conclusion that the Holy Spirit is somehow less than the Father or the Son. That would be blasphemous. That would be heresy because of the doctrine of the Trinity, which is clearly set forth in Scripture. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal in essence, Distinct in subsistence. All right, the next question, uh, we'll turn over to 1 John, over near the end of the New Testament. It's not really on this passage, but this is passage we'll use to answer the question. 1 John 4. <clears throat> and then we'll look at a verse in Hebrews. And uh, the question is this, why is the doctrine of Jesus eternal I like the way this is asked, so, so notice that. Why is the doctrine of Jesus' eternal humanity important, and why do we find it in Scripture? Well, let me just back up a little bit to give some background on this issue. Um, it might surprise you to, to know, hear this, unless you, you are a pretty diligent student of Scripture, that the issue that we face today in Christianity, one of the primary issues we face, is a battle for the deity of Jesus Christ. You, you know that if you've, if you've uh, been a Christian for any length of time. Because look at uh, false religions today, cults today, and almost always, almost always, the issue is a denial of the full deity of Jesus Christ. Mormons deny his deity. Jehovah's, Witness denies his, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses deny his deity. The Way International denies his deity. Just go down the list. Uh, that is almost always the issue that we have to battle. This is what might surprise you. In the first century, it was almost the exact opposite. In the first century, the issue that the believers had to face and fight for was for the true and genuine humanity of Jesus. 
groups did not deny his deity as much as they denied his humanity. And even though Gnosticism was not full-blown in the first century, it came kind of end of the first century, early second century, the seeds of Gnosticism were already present in the first century. And in case you're not familiar with Gnosticism, let me just give you a quick background. The Gnostics taught that uh, matter is evil. Anything material, like this pulpit, because it's matter, or it has substance, it's wicked, uh, it's evil, or it's certainly less than spiritual. Spirit is is good, matter is bad. That was the basic, uh, one of the basic tenets of Gnosticism. Therefore, now think about this. If you have a belief that spirit is good, but matter is bad or inferior, the, the doctrines that spin off from that would be many. One of the doctrines was, and you see the writers of the New Testament addressing this, one of the doctrines is it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. Right? Because, you know, matter is wicked anyway. It's inferior. So do what you want with your body. Which led, of course, to a lot of immorality. And the writers of the New Testament addressed that. It's, all that matters is your heart, see, in Gnosticism. And another doctrine that's, that was a spinoff was this. Well, if matter is inherently wicked or at least inherently inferior, then there is no way that Jesus could have truly become a man. Because if he became fully and truly human, well, now he's tainted. He is either sinful or at least inferior to what he could have been. So the the Gnostic teaching developed a doctrine known as doceticism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. It comes from the Greek word dakeo, which means to seem. And here's what they taught about Jesus. They taught that he really didn't become a man, but he seemed to become a man. It appeared to become a man. He appeared to become a man. And in fact, some of the more elaborate doctrines that they came up with was that Jesus was not a man, not really a man, until, until at his baptism, when the Holy Spirit came upon him, then at that point the Christ entered this human man. And so you have Jesus. In other words, the man Jesus wasn't really Christ the Son of God, but the Christ entered him at his baptism when the dove came down and then had to leave him before his crucifixion. And you have all of these these strange doctrines basically to get around the idea that Jesus was truly and fully human. So all that to say this, I love your question because what it does is it takes us back into the first century and what first century Christians had to battle, namely, not so much the deity of Christ, but the humanity of Christ, his true humanity, his genuine humanity, his full humanity. And therefore, you have a statement like this in 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, if we were writing this today, we would say, here's a false prophet, someone who denies the deity of Jesus. That's not what John says, though that's true. Notice what he says. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. That is, every spirit that confesses the true and full humanity of Jesus is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. And the interesting thing about this is that when John writes these words, 
Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He uses in Greek what's known as the perfect tense, which means it is a tense of the verb that emphasizes an action with ongoing results or continuing results. So he doesn't merely say Jesus Christ came in the flesh. That is, he came and now that's done with. Jesus Christ has come. Perfect tense. He has come in the flesh. You could almost translate this. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and is still in the flesh. That person is of God. Now what's significant about that is John wrote this in approximately, use a round date, A.D. 90. He wrote this in 90. Jesus ascended in pick a date, 33. So John wrote this 60, approximately 60 years after Jesus had ascended. And he uses the perfect tense to say Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and is still in the flesh. So in heaven, is Jesus a man? Absolutely he's a man. Is he God? Yes, he's God. But he is fully and completely and truly human. And that was not temporary. When Jesus became a man, that was forever. And he will be a man for all eternity. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, if you back up just a a few pages to Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews tells us the theological, one of the theological reasons behind it. He says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore, in all things... He had to be made like his brethren. In other words, he had to become human. Why? So that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, the only way he could satisfy the wrath of God against people is for him to become a people. That is part of us, one of us, human. He had to become fully and truly human to die in our place as our substitute. And that is why, and John makes it clear in 1 John 4, and these aren't the only passages, by the way, but John makes it clear that that was not temporary. So it's a great question you ask. Why is the doctrine of Jesus' eternal humanity important? And and what all is behind this? You've got Gnosticism and those attacks. You've got the theological issue of his humanity here, etc. You've got the statement of John in 1 John 4. So Jesus became a man. And he will forever be a man. All right, final question tonight. Um, it is this. Uh, turn to 1 Peter 2. This, again, is not necessarily on this, but we'll use this passage in part of the answer. 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> uh, and the question is this. Is it unbiblical or idolatrous to pledge allegiance to the flag or to your country? Can we have allegiance to God and to something else? And here's the answer. Some can and some can't. Now, I'm not waffling on this question. I'm telling you honestly. You you ask, is it idolatrous to do that? So I'll say it this way. To some Christians, it is idolatrous. They believe it's idolatrous. And to other Christians, it is not idolatrous. In fact, this issue is probably very much like meat offered to idols in the first century. Now think about that. You you use the word idolatrous in your question. Some Christians would consider it idolatrous to eat meat offered to idols, right? I mean, if it's meat offered to idols, then it's idolatrous. But other Christians would say, what's an idol? It's a piece of wood. It's nothing. So it's... it's, uh, it's, uh, it's no big deal. By the way, that's the side Paul landed on. He said it's, it's no big deal. 
But some Christians would not be able to do that. I don't know, frankly. If I lived in the first century, if I would, if I would be able to bring myself to walk into a pagan temple where there are idols and people offering meat to idols and buy that meat and eat it, I don't know if my conscience would let me do that. It's hard to know unless I were really back in that situation. But some Christians, understandably, their conscience would not let them do that. Others, it was no problem. And I think this is a similar issue. There are some Christians who think it's idolatrous to pledge allegiance because they say you can have only one allegiance to God. Other Christians say no. 1 Peter 2 says in verse 17, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. All I'm doing is honoring my country, honoring the king, and so there's nothing idolatrous about it. So it's probably very much like that, and you have to go with your conscience. And uh, if your conscience says it's idolatrous, then don't violate your conscience. And if your conscience doesn't say that, then, then you're okay. All right. Now, I just thought, I'm sorry, I said one more question, but I thought there was a question here that I haven't answered. And if it's yours, whoever you are, I'm sorry, I don't see it. Uh, but there was another question I remember about, uh, about something. But I, I can't, <laughs> I, I've gone through all these questions. So if it was yours, uh, come up to me afterwards and I'll answer it. Because I remember talking about how John uses different words uh, in his gospel, and I didn't bring that out, so uh, if it's your question, sorry, I'll answer it personally. All right? Let's stand as we close in prayer. Father, thank you for our time together this evening, and uh, thank you for the, uh, the depth of your word. There are so many things, so many issues that it addresses. No wonder the Apostle Peter could say, in Second Peter, that you have granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And no wonder the Apostle Paul could say that all Scripture is the very breath of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Because your word touches on so many facets of life, so many dynamics, so many issues, if not, in, if not in exact precept, then certainly in principle. And so uh, we thank you that we can turn to it. And even as the psalmist said so many hundreds and hundreds of years ago, it's a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. And uh, may we take heed to it, uh, treasure it, learn it, be accurate with it. Uh, as, as Paul said uh, to Timothy, to rightly divide the word of truth. Uh, so that we can mine its depths and pull from it the uh, glorious truth that is, as Jesus said, freeing. Because he said, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Thank you for the uh, freeing nature of your truth. And uh, thank you for the privilege that is ours to, to read it, to study it and learn it, to share it, to live it, and uh, to pass it on to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.